we're in the midst of the crucifixion. We're actually at the end of the actual crucifixion. Jesus is, uh, you know, stood before Pilate recently. Um, they've uh, replaced, uh, you know, Jesus with Barabbas, set Barabbas uh, free, uh, you know, beaten him, mocked him, uh, taken him uh, to the cross, crucified him, and he's in the process of uh, perishing uh, for for us uh, here in uh, Mark chapter 15. We'll pick up at verse 33. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Um, it's interesting because uh, they have done extensive studies to see uh, where did this happen in time. And um, uh, there were those who wanted to uh, simply say, well, it's an eclipse, you know, as though, as though that wouldn't be miraculous. You know, the timing... Uh, would have been astonishing even if it were an eclipse. But here's the thing. It was not an eclipse. Okay, And what's most remarkable about this is that as they searched for the eclipse and discovered it's not an eclipse, they did find historically that there were many, right? Because an eclipse is going to be local where the moon passes in front of the sun, you're going to have that pinpoint, pinpoint, you're going to have that spot where the moon creates that darkness. And they began to discover that, oh no, other areas were recording darkness. And what we've come to discover is that the world experienced darkness. This, this was not localized. This was a worldwide darkness. If you've studied your way through the Old Testament and you know of the curses that came upon the nation of Egypt as they were being told to let Israel go and Pharaoh was refusing, we have that occasion where it was recorded that darkness came upon the nation of Egypt and and it was a darkness that the scripture recorded as being so dense that it could be physically felt. Okay, There are accounts of this and its similarities. It, it, it isn't uh, the sense of um, like a nervousness that is generated from the fact that it's so dark. Uh, it, it was literally a physiological experience. The people who described it said that they were literally feeling it upon them, a weight upon them, a darkness upon them. And, uh, you know, you consider that the scripture tells us God is light. Okay. Now consider that in the six days of creation that are recorded, God says, let there be light, and light was. Uh, then later, let there be the sun and the moon and the stars. Light was created prior to the sun, okay? God gave light. Uh, look forward past the book of Revelation, if that's possible in your 
mind, new heaven and new earth, no sun. God is the illumination that is present there. God has become a man and, and is sacrificing his life here on the cross, and the light is going out. It's a remarkable thing to consider that, that what's happening here is perhaps universal, right? People, you know, sort of mock Christianity. I'll chase a rabbit trail for us here. Hopefully it's informative uh, to you. Uh, you know, you're hearing a lot right now about follow the science, right? We're, we're hearing that a lot. I've had conversations with people recently quite a, quite a number of times about the fact that really what has happened is humanity came off the rails of science right about 1869 as it began following Darwinistic evolution, right? Because that's not scientific. Uh, what, is, what is science? We use that phrase a lot of times. Well, science proves... Yada, yada, yada. Well, guess what? Science doesn't prove anything. Okay? And I'm not being ignorant. Science examines things. That's what science does. Okay? I'm just going to fracture the rabbit trail and continue down. Okay, so follow this. Uh, you've heard me talk perhaps in the past about gravity. Right? We that were raised in the government school systems and that whole ideology often think of gravity as right that that mass right generates or produces gravity so the greater the mass the greater the gravity right earth has a certain gravitational force and pull the moon smaller smaller gravitational force and pull okay there's some science to that that you can examine and reproduce but there's a mystery in gravity also, John Anderson was in charge of the development of Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. So if I lost you, maybe you're back with me now. Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 were launched in the early 80s, uh, one year apart from one another, separate uh, straight shots out through the solar system with a plan that as these two spacecraft satellites really traveled through the solar system in particular, they were going to get detailed photographs of the planets that they passed, and they were going to transmit them back to us. So John Anderson formulates the whole thing and, and develops it and runs the whole program. So, you know, genius beyond measure, probably. Uh, IQ somewhere around 189. If you're, if you're wondering, you know, Einstein's IQ was measured at around 160. So, okay, so genius guy in his process. And out goes Voyager 1, and John's tracking things, and other people are sort of like picking up his notes along the way and learning and following. And John is aiming his, his our satellites at Voyager 1 because the data stream that's coming back is immense, right? It's huge. And, and to pull down the photographs, the data, I mean, you're talking 80s, right? The cameras on board were not like today. So they're pulling down huge amounts of data, and he's got to be lined up on that thing very perfectly for an extended period of time for it to transmit back. Well, right away, it's not lined up with where it's supposed to be. And John was troubled by that, so do some adjustments, right? 
because like he's he's pointing here and it's not there and so he points further out and it's not there and so he tracks back along the line that it's supposed to travel and he finds it back here it was supposed to be further out and it's back here it's not as far out as it should be and that was troubling to him and over time what he discovers is that Voyager 1 is slowing down okay straight shot right any of us that have studied uh, you know, science interested in that, gravity, right? Uh, an object set in motion uh, without being interfered with will continue on that same trajectory with that same velocity unless otherwise interfered with. I knew you remembered that from science class. So, you know, as that thing is traveling along and John's looking for it, it's not where it's supposed to be. It's back. It's slowing down. And it isn't just that it got slowed down because that would have been a one-time reduction in velocity and then it would continue at that rate no it's slowing down like somebody's on board with the brakes on so john does the calculation doesn't tell anyone right just says okay if i'm going to find my satellite each time i'm going to have to reduce the trajectory by such and such and i'll point i'm talking like i'm smart i'm just interpreting what i've read um you know i'm gonna i'm gonna have to reduce the trajectory and i'm gonna have to point at a, a further back point and i'll discover it there and i can do that calculation each time so i'll be able to line up and get the data that i'm supposed to and in this calculation he says okay it's slowing down at such and such a rate so it must have a problem there's a damage, there's an off gas, there's something happening that's causing it to slow down as it travels through space. And in that, he does this massive ca calculation and can actually determine where it's going to come to a stop out there a gajillion miles from Earth, right? He's startled when they launch Voyager 2, and it's well on the way, and he goes to look for it, and it's not where it belongs. And he says, wow, I wonder. And he runs the calculation according to Voyager 1 and backs the receiver up. And sure enough, it's slowing down at the identical rate. Two different paths, right? Nothing wrong with the spacecraft. Uh, John makes the mathematical conclusion that there is a force acting upon these vehicles that are slowing them down both at identical rates and they're going to come to stop at the same distance from earth as one another right they let them go for a specific period of time and in this whole process he runs the full calculation and comes to the conclusion <laughs> gravity's not what we thought it was Gravity is affecting these spacecraft, and it's bringing them to a stop. And he literally does the calculation. Uh, first, he tells us where we're going to lose track of them as far as being able to communicate with them, and that is accurate to the millisecond. And then on top of that, he tells us where they're going to come to a stop out there. It'll be beyond our reach, but they're just going to be sitting in space someplace. Stopped. Gravity is not what we thought it was because there is no mass affecting them they're not within proximity to planet sun gravitational force or pull there is a force that is bringing them to a stop all of that to say right 
We go, science has proven. Science doesn't prove anything. Science examines things. We can look at things repeatedly. So, so within what we're seeing here and the whole idea that Jesus is God, God is light, that the darkness has come upon the earth, that we're experiencing, this, this is something that we shouldn't ever look at and feel like, oh, well, that's unscientific. People that impose that upon you, your faith, when you're, when you're talking about COVID-19, Right? When you're talking about the different things of our culture, our belief system, creation versus evolution, don't ever let anybody intimidate you with science. Okay? I would strongly encourage you to study science. Um, you say, I'm not a big fan of science. Please make note of Answers in Genesis, the ministry, and go check out their website. And... Um, you know, the, the, the nice thing about Answers in Genesis, um, if you have an interest in a particular area, uh, a, a certain subject, you can go to their search bar and type it in, and this is what I do. Uh, they'll produce from your search on their website, let's say, thousands of articles where I was going is universal dilation, and I know you're very interested in that. So, um, you know, <clears throat> if you type in universal dilation, especially after I get done talking about it in a moment, uh, you open up the first article, and it's somebody's doctrinal thesis that you're like, pow, your head just explodes. Just close that one and open the next one. And if your head explodes again, open the next one and the next one until you're reading one that you're like, oh, this is dumbed down for me. I can read this, which is that's how I do it. Okay, If it sounds like I read the first one on doctrinal thesis and I just got, no, that's not what happens. Uh, very often, it's way beyond me. I, I hear something I want to understand. I go, I research, and, and, and it isn't even their opinion. What it is is somebody's examination and study, universal dilation. I'm glad you brought it up. So um, the, the, the universe apparently becoming dark at Jesus' crucifixion. So long ago, right, Roman Catholicism controlled science. Right. And, and here come real scientists that are saying, you know, the church's theory of the Earth's position is incorrect. It is not the center. Right. Uh, we, they refer to the Earth as geo, you know, geocentric system where the Earth is in the center and everything, you know, rotates around. And, and so, you know, along comes you know, Sir Isaac Newton and others that say, no, not geocentric. The sun does not rotate around and Roman Catholicism loses its mind and threatens to burn people at the stake or crucify them or who knows what because uh, they're heretics and saying things against the scripture. Uh, and they prove it out that it is, in fact, heliocentric. Sun, helos, being the center of our solar system and everything rotates around that. So then everybody goes, right, so the earth isn't the center of God's creation, and then they proceed away from that to say, so the earth is meaningless. God did not create the earth as the center of all things. And, you know, I say something like, when Jesus Christ died, perhaps the universe went dark, and people are like, they balk at that, like, that's stupid. 
Well, here's the thought. The scripture says that sin and death entered creation, not just earth, entered creation through Adam. So if you want to say, well, I think that there are creatures living on other planets in other solar systems and galaxies far, far away, okay? It would be difficult for me to argue because I've never been there, okay? There are some points I'd like to put out in that discussion, but it'd be difficult for me to say, you know, emphatically, no, there is not life anywhere else. But here's something to consider. Um, the, uh, the, the universe is expanding, right? Uh, it's, it's moving outward. And, and, and uh, scientists are able to map the movement. They can, they can look and say, well, last year that star was right there. And now this year it's moved a little and it's right there. The constellations stay the same, right? Because the movement is so small as far as the distance that it is from us. But they can tell you that star is moving that direction and that star is moving that direction and that star is moving that direction and they move this much every year. We can measure these things. What's really interesting, right, is if you got your ruler out that was as big as the universe, okay, and, and you said, now last year this star was right here. And now this this year it's all the way out here. I, I'm exaggerating, right? And you lay your ruler down so that it's where it was last year and where it is this year and you draw a straight line. That line comes right back here. And then you take that other star over there where it was and you put your ruler on that and put it on where it is now compared to where it was last year or even 10 years ago or as far back as we've been watching it, and you draw a straight line, that line points right back here. And you put it on that star, and that line points right back here. Right? Dilation, right? to dilate in or out, the universe is dilating. And guess what? All the lines point back to Earth. God created in Genesis... And all of his focus was right here on planet Earth. So when I say to you that there is strong evidence that the entire Earth went dark, and there's some thought that perhaps the universe went dark. Why? Because God became a man and came to Earth, and God, being light, sacrificed himself for us. Remarkable to consider. You know, like I said, all of these big-brained thinkers that reject faith and Christianity want to brush that off. I'll give you another thought along these same lines. <clears throat> the largest body of scientists in the world is the Creation Research Institute in San Diego, California. It, it is not NASA, right? It is not... The volcanologists, it is not the planetarian, it is not paleontologists, it's Creation Research Institute in San Diego, California. You might want to go home and look up descentfromdarwin.com, right? To disagree with Darwin, to descend and protest his belief system. 
there are tens of thousands of scientists who are the leading scientists in their field who have included their names and their credentials on that website to say, we reject Darwinistic evolution. And we know it to be false. What's remarkable when you look at that is that many of those people that have stepped forward and said that have lost their jobs, have been fired for simply saying we do not agree with Darwinistic evolution. There is a conspiracy that insists you either agree with us or we'll strip you of your credentials, we'll renounce you. You have to agree with the system or you will be rejected. It's remarkable to, to me, uh, you know, I don't even have permission. My wife's going through this nursing program, University of Maine, and they literally have documentation that says you will agree with us and you will sign this or we will not give you your credentials. You have to lockstep and say what they are saying. If you dare raise any opposition, uh, you will you know, at least bring your credentials under threat. And now that I've said that, I'm putting even more pressure on her. So, you know, we're going to leave it online and see, you know, what happens, what people do. Here, you know, all of that, as I said, the sixth hour had come. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, uh, so Mark chapter 15, verse 34, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now this again, again, is the understanding that Jesus is God, but he is separate from God the Father. So for any of us that have struggled with the Trinity or know and love people, that struggle with the Trinity or have rejected the Trinity, that, that try to change its definition or move things around. Uh, this is one of the strongest indications that the Trinity is, in fact, real. You know, we pointed back to the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus is saying, you know, uh, if there's any way, let this cup pass for me, but nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done, showing that there was a difference between God the Father's will and Jesus' will. So separation of these two entities. Jesus is God, and yet he's separate from God the Father. Their wills are different in that moment. Here, you actually see that there's a further separation of persons. As Jesus is expressing, you have forsaken me. You've departed from me. You have left me in this circumstance. And I say again that this is Jesus demonstrating for us that we are this distant from God all of the time. We have those rare moments of closeness and fellowship, and they are so fulfilling where, you know, you're, you're in the word and the Lord is ministering to you in such a way that you just can't even believe what, what is being said, you know. Uh, I've had it in very, very positive ways. I've had it in much more negative ways. You know, I'll never forget years ago struggling with habitual sin and 
you know, coming to a cataclysmic moment in my walk with the Lord where I understood the Lord was confronting me over this needs to go from your life. And I opened up First John and there First John is saying, if you say that you walk in the light and yet you walk in darkness, you lie and do not practice the truth and you do not have fellowship with God. And I was I mean, I'm already accepting it, but there it is confronting me, and I want to reject it, and I'm having this whole dilemma over what's being said. And literally in prayer, I'm saying, God, I wish that that said something else. It confronts me so strongly that, that, that I can't hardly stand what I'm reading. And I mean, I close the book, and I'm just in prayer. And after I got my heart settled down, and I got back to my Bible study sometime later. I thought, you know, I should really read what Matthew Henry has to say about that passage. He just wrote more than 300 years ago, and he's just so concise and everything that he said. And so I dug out my Matthew Henry commentary, and I open it up. And as I'm reading, there's Matthew Henry saying, you know, it's the sinfulness within us that wants with every fiber of our being for this passage to say something other than what it says. And he goes on at length, quoting what I had cried out to God just moments ago. And, and it was a great confirmation to me, confrontational confirmation to me, that the Word of God was penetrating my heart. And the Holy Spirit was confronting me. And he was saying, these things needed to go from my life. And I needed to live in obedience to him. And no human being could have stepped into my environment and said those things to me as pointedly and as sharply as the word of God had in those moments. You know, it is remarkable to understand the consciousness of God and how he sees us. Right. You know, as much as that was a confrontation, I understood God is right here with me. You know, he's correcting me. He's speaking to me right now. Here's Jesus, who has always had that level of connection for all of eternity. And suddenly he can't sense God. He can't, he can't feel God. He can't hear God. And he's crying out, where have you gone? Why have you left me here? Why? Because he, he, in this moment, was taking on my sin and your sin. The thing that separates us from that fellowship with God. Jesus is experiencing it for the first time in eternity. And it's breaking his heart. He's calling out to the Lord and begging for his presence to be known. Great confirmation of the Trinity. The fact that their bond in fellowship is being broken right here. And Jesus is expressing it in such an adamant way. It's quite remarkable. Uh, verse 35, some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he is calling for Elijah. I, I want to point something out. He's, he's rejected a drink. At the beginning of the crucifixion, we talked about that in detail because there was a massive pain reliever in it, right? The sour wine mixed with gall would have sedated him very powerfully. He refuses that. In a moment, he's going to take a drink in order to speak clearly 
This is an indication that he's probably through his pain and agony not speaking clearly and not speaking well. Because they're misinterpreting Eli, Eli as Elijah, Elijah. Right? Listen to him. Right? He's calling for Elijah. No. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. He's calling for God. Elohim. Eloi, he's calling for God. He is in tremendous agony. Then someone ran and filled a sponge of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. They, they mock the situation. Don't give him a drink. Let him suffer. How callous do you have to be? I mean it, really, right? Re-examine it one more time. What has Jesus done anywhere along the way? Right? If you're examining my life and you've seen my every moment, and I'm in the midst of torturous suffer, you, even you, if you've seen every moment of my life, would look on and think, well, you know, he has done plenty of things that he's deserving of that. If you've watched Jesus every moment, there's no failure. He is perfect. Right? If we just take his public ministry, he, he has always done good, always done well, cared for and healed and restored and fed and nurtured and been kind, always been good. And now these people wish him evil. Look, if they wish Jesus evil, brace yourself. They're going to wish you evil, right? Because you don't meet the perfect mark of Jesus. You got plenty of flaw. Me more than you, I know that, but you know. He he's flawed. You know, you you are flawed, I mean, and I am flawed. And and people are going to hate us. Jesus is flawless and they hate him. He, Jesus made that comment, didn't he, right? If they hate me, they're surely going to hate you. They they're, they're going to have lots to say against you. Every human being falls short of the mark. Leave him alone. Then Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Now, I'll say again that the differences in the Gospels are a confirmation of the accuracy. That They are not a contradiction that you know, invites criticism. The differences prove the fact that this is a real account. Um, I, I have many law enforcement friends today. Years ago, they were all enemies, but today, many of them are my friends. I've talked to several of them who've been through extensive training, and one of the things that they always look for when they're questioning people is they want to see differences. They want to see differences in the accounts. If, if they talk to one person and then the next person tells them the exact same thing, that, that automatically is a massive red flag. And then they talk to the next person and it's exactly the same thing. They, they immediately assume, okay, these people have collaborated together to develop this story. Because if, if there isn't that whole thing, what are we going to tell them? You know, well, let's tell them that we arrived at 530. 
and that you came through the door first, and then you were second, and then when we, and then you saw this, and then you saw that, and then this experience. If you've told the story and developed it, then you're going to tell the exact same details. Whereas if if everybody has very different points of view, but they, in hearing each point, can put it together and gain the entire understanding. That's why they ask questions over and over again. They, they are looking for the differences and building together one picture. So I'm going to give us a couple things here uh, that show us different points of view. Uh, Peter and John Mark worked together to write this gospel of Mark that we're reading. And they were doing it from their memories. You know, Peter might have said, oh, well, this happened and that happened. And Mark might have said, well, wasn't that when he also said this? And then Peter said, you're right, I do remember that. We were downtown or however that went. And Yeah, and they assembled their account. Matthew uh, was a man who worked for the Roman government as a tax collector. And as such, uh, you've heard me say many times, tax collectors were required to have shorthand capabilities so that as they were talking to people about tax records, they could jot down shorthand of the conversation and then give a very accurate account. Whereas Luke, being a very studied physician, is talking to people much later and he's going around and interviewing all the people who were involved and assembling it. So we get very different accounts but that isn't a disproving of the accounts. It is a collection of a whole. So here Jesus cried out with a loud voice, breathed his last. Luke tells us, chapter 23, verse 46, when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Right? He committed himself to the Lord, and this is also doctrinally one of the things we hold to where people who have incorrectly taught, you know, Jesus went to hell and was in fiery torment and demons did terrible things to him. Uh, here, Jesus turned his spirit over to the Heavenly Father. Right? God isn't going to drop him, lose track of him, put him in places that he doesn't belong. He committed himself to the Lord. John chapter 19 verse 30 says when Jesus had received the sour wine. So while they mocked him and said don't give that to him. John tells us that he took the sour wine. So he maybe even recognized people aren't understanding what I'm saying. So he sucks in that last drink. Clears his throat and then says it is finished, to telestai, which is an all-inclusive term. All things are finished, right? Uh, that's important and significant doctrinally. You don't need to add anything to Jesus' crucifixion. That declaration of it is finished is the sacrifice is finished. The law is finished, not that it's done away with. It's completed, Right? Move that over uh, to the church today. You do not need to accept Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, his death as your payment 
and also speak in tongues. Right? It was finished at the cross. You don't need to add to Jesus' death on the cross baptism. You should be baptized. If you're unbaptized, then you're hearing me say right now, you should be baptized. You should be baptized. No, you're better than Jesus. Jesus got baptized. Good grief. If Jesus got baptized, surely you need to get baptized. Right? You should be, but it's not necessary. We also know that. Why? Because the thief at the cross was not baptized. And yet Jesus said, I tell you that today you'll be with me in paradise. Why? Because Jesus said it's finished right here. It's all finished in his sacrificial death at the cross. Anyone who tries to teach you it's Jesus and something else is incorrect. It is Jesus only at the cross that provides you with that salvation. That's, that's what you need. That's what I need is, is his fulfillment here. Bowed his head, gave up his spirit. Now, in verse 38... It tells us, then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Okay, and and just so we get this straight. Uh, you know, we have heard that term in America, in Christianity, for so long that we sometimes lose traction on what Son of God means, right? Uh, you know, forgive me, I do that all the time of, you know, a, a, a dog gives birth to a dog, a fish gives birth to a fish, right? A human being gives birth to a human being. God gives birth to God. Son of God is God, right? You think about the pantheon of Roman gods, right? Zeus and, you know, Poseidon and all of the, you know, Diana, all the different gods that the Romans had. Think about all of the myth and the tales that they told about gods and their actions and their interactions. And now this centurion is crucifying a man who has claimed to be God, and when he watches him die, the world goes black. And and there is an earthquake. When he says, it is finished, the earth shakes. That would have a profound impression upon you. Um, When we're told here that the temple veil was torn and two from top to bottom. Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse uh, 51. Now here's another thing about Matthew, right? Matthew Levi, right? So he was from the tribe of Levi, which meant he had rejected being part of the priesthood and gone the exact opposite direction to embrace Rome and the betraying money that they offered to the tax collectors. So he's got very strong connections in Rome. And we see that throughout 
the book of Matthew. He tells us of things that were going on inside Roman gatherings, inside Roman courts, uh, things that were said by Pilate, Pilate's wife, circumstances that only come from very intimate knowledge of Roman circles. Okay, uh, So he telling us here, he also has a strong connection of the priesthood and the Levitical side. Is an interesting character. Matthew 27, verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earthquakes, the rocks split, the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. People, many people were resurrected when Jesus Christ was resurrected. Um, that opens up a strong theological debate of why were they resurrected? How were they resurrected? What happened to them after they were resurrected? And uh, my theory, theory is that Jesus Christ descended into Abraham's bosom. Read uh, the book of Luke where Jesus talks about the rich man and Lazarus and how they die in the beggar Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. The rich man is in hell and can see Lazarus and begs Lazarus to come over and touch his tongue with water and can't go back and forth. We're told, uh, you know, send someone back to my brothers. So there were those in Abraham's bosom that were waiting for the promise of salvation. It's possible, possible that Jesus descended into that place of the dead Right, who were believers waiting for the promise of salvation, and he preached to them the fulfillment of the promise, which seemingly, right, the wicked who were in hell, according to Jesus, could see Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, perhaps saw Jesus. Imagine how horrifying that would be. No, really, think about uh, you, you know a person has rejected God all of their life died, they're now tormented in hell, and then salvation appears right over there. That would be heartbreaking. It would make hell all the more hell to consider that. So anyway, they were resurrected perhaps with him, right? Uh, to the earth. Why? And why not just into heaven? Well, uh, no access to eternal salvation without Jesus Christ, and he has not ascended to the Father. He spends 40 days here on earth. So maybe, may all speculation, will cast speculation, right? Extra biblical. So forgive me for that. But it's recorded that they were resurrected. So my, my mind, wrestling with this for years now, he descends, preaches to them. He rises from the dead. They rise with him. They minister for 40 days until he ascends. And my theory is they ascend with him into the presence of the Father. Uh, to be there. So you can have your own convoluted opinion. That's my convoluted opinion. <clears throat> 15 verse 40. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and Joseph and Salome, who followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Ladies, listen. There's all kinds of sexist opinion inside Christianity about your importance within the church. 
the church would not be alive today if it were not for the women, right? No? Do any of you have homes and husbands and children? None of them would be alive if it wasn't for you, am I right? Okay. Uh, well, at least the dishes would not be done, and uh, you know what I'm saying? That they would be living in squalor, am I correct? You know, such such powerful ministry, such powerful ministry, uh, and, and not in small numbers. Okay, uh, you're reading through the book of Matthew, you're reading through the book of John, of the women who were present and supportive, and the women who were present and supportive, seemingly when no one else was. You get to the book of Acts, and Peter is recognizing, oh, you know. Uh, Psalm 109, verse 8, was a prophecy about Judas, uh, his days being cut short, and another taking his place of office. So we probably ought to vote somebody into his office, and they draw straws and pick Matthias and appoint him to replace Judas. And I've gone on at length about how I think that was a mistake. I think Paul was actually the supposed uh, replacement uh, for Judas. Point being there, it says that 120 of them, right? Now keep this in mind. 120 men, okay? There were 120 that they could choose from. They're only going to choose a man, and it says that there were 120 that had followed continuously from the beginning of Jesus' ministry to that point. If there are 120 men, other than, apparently, the 12, right? Maybe the 70 are numbered amongst that 120, I have to think that there was a much larger pool that was with Jesus continually of women, supportive and working and caring for and ministering to people and being amongst them. Here, everyone else is gone. Who's present? Women. Women are present. Certainly, listen to me, Certainly the scripture is clear that the Lord wants men to be the head of their household and the head of the church. But I'll say again, the only men Jesus Christ wants in those two roles are men that behave like him. That's a small number, huh? That's a very small number. When he says, wives, submit to husbands, he says, in the Lord, right? Uh, meaning, if they're not in the Lord, then you're not as required to submit to them, right? Because you have to consider, you have to consider, ladies, sometimes this man you're asked to submit to loses his mind. <laughs> he's, he's not right. No? How do I know that? Because I've watched you. You lose your mind. Don't walk with the Lord. Get in the flesh. So does he. And at times you've got to consider, do I follow this? Right? No? How about, how about this? Again, and I know I'm chasing the rabbit trail. Uh, because if he's fallen to the flesh and he's now angry and he's now lashing out and saying, um... If you follow that example, what do you become? Right? If you in that moment, right, hear what Peter is saying about submitting, at that point, that's when you step out from underneath his guidance. No, 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 no. See, because if you lash out 
and you say all kinds of junk and you do terrible things, then you are following him. Ah, see, the very thing you said, I won't follow this guy because he's a creep. Look at him. Look at how he's behaving. And then you act like a creep. What are you doing? You are following his lead. If you'll step out from underneath that and be quiet like Jesus would be, and you follow his example. So very often, what we do, you guys, is we use someone else's failure as our own excuse. Darn it. Wish it wasn't that way. But it is. Women have a profound role in the body of Christ. Profound role. He wants men to rise to the occasion and lead as he would have led to be gentle, to be meek, to be strong, uh, to have clear thought, to have godly reactions, to, to make proper decisions. He wants those things of us. Not, not our selfishness, not our sinfulness, not our flesh, not our anger. He doesn't need any of that garbage. Not at all. In the church, he needs, he needs meek and mild, loving caring, gentle men. That's what he needs. In the home, same thing, right? In the community. You know, I'll sidestep since I'm already out there. Uh, <clears throat> read Proverbs 31, all of us, and understand there's a woman that every man within the church is told, look for a woman like this. Who is she? Independent business owner making her own decisions. Hiring and firing, buying and selling, right? On her own, on her, without her husband's involvement. And we're told that's exemplary. The scripture isn't calling for subdued, cowed women to just bow before men. I say again, uh, this concept of the Lord asking for submission is for that point of leadership, so that there's singularity of leadership. You know, but within that, we need the elder wisdom of women who can see and understand. I called my wife today and had a 45-minute conversation where I said, I'm calling you up because I need your wisdom. Because right now, what I want to do is something that's entirely male, will cast bad. So please, please, please advise me. And she did. She gave me profound advice and then said, and I'm going to take it from here. And she took it from there and called me back later and said, I've straightened it all out for you. Right? That, that was, listen to me, that was actually my leadership. I'm not saying that out of pride. That was me saying, oh, I'm going to screw this up bad. I need to call this woman. What's the womanly God? What's the godly woman's insight here? And she gave it to me. Thank goodness. Thank God. Thank glory. <laughs> right? The Lord. Women are here, present. Everyone else has fled. They've all bailed. And they are present. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that, the day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member. That, that is one of the most significant religious positions of this culture of this day. It's difficult 
to describe how influential this man is in his position. And we have lots of history that points to Joseph of Arimathea, not, not just the Bible. We have Roman history, we have Jewish history uh, that, that give us accounts of who this man was and who his prominence was. In fact, I'm going to make uh, comparisons here in just a moment that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are actually working together in this setting. And these are the two most prominent people in the Jewish religious community of this day. Okay, uh, you, know, you have... Um, Several different uh, accounts. Flavius Josephus gives us insight uh, to both of these men. Uh, you know, uh, Roman historians, uh, Roman senators write about these men, their wealth, their influence, their power within the community. These, this is as prominent an individual within the Israeli state as you could possibly come by at this moment in history. So here, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. And that's the idea of truly, not, not the idea of, you know, the apostles arguing over, I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. This man was truly waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, right? He's going to go against, he's on the council for the Sanhedrin. He's going to go against that council. That has massive political implications with Rome. He's going to go against that common sense. In order to see it, takes great courage, goes entirely against the grain, steps forward, went to Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. I made the point recently in discussion. Uh, according to the Jews, uh, excuse me, according to the Romans, shortest crucifixion on Roman record, 32 hours. Hung on the cross for 32 hours. Longest over 14 days hanging on the cross. Uh, if I didn't mention it before, uh, the description, uh, we suspect that the individual that was there for two weeks probably died of dehydration rather than the crucifixion. Horrendous experience. He's he stunned that they're already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him, if he had been dead for some time. And that's the idea of, are we sure he's dead? <laughs> you know, not like, you know, did he just die? Did he just stop moving? You know, is he just passed out from the pain? He's saying, is it, I mean, are, are, do we have like a confirmation? And, and just for the gravity of the situation, within an hour uh, you're going to see uh, the coagulation of blood, the separation of platelets from plasma. Uh, coloration is going to begin to settle into all of the lower parts of the body. Uh, things are going to darken and things are going to yellow. Um, you know, they're they're going to very easily be able to distinguish death. Uh, you know that 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 he is expired. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he brought, meaning Joseph, fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen, laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. A couple of things about this, you guys. This completely exempts Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, as we're going to read, from all religious ceremonies 
because they are now defiled. They're going to be covered in blood. They're handling a dead body. So, so the sacrifice for them uh, socially is tremendous. This is the high holy day for the nation of Israel. Everyone in their family, everyone in their circumstance is going to be engaged in religious ceremony, great feasting, great celebration, and they're going to have to say, I can't be involved. Okay, why? I mean, imagine, imagine on such a smaller scale, if, if you went to the most honored person in your family day before Christmas and they tell you, I, I can't be involved. I can't, I can't open presents with you. I can't share the meal. I can't be present with the family. I'm not, I'm not going to be there. Yesterday, they were going to be there. They were bringing the turkey. They, they, they had a truckload of presents. They were completely involved yesterday. Today, they're not coming at all. Okay, It's way beyond that. This, this man participating in this is, is, is a nullifying of a massive segment of everything. It's going to be a shockwave through this family of what? Joseph is not here. Why is Joseph not here? Wait a second. He he handled a dead body. Whose dead body? Jesus. Wait a second. He's involved with Jesus, right? I mean, this is, it's difficult to explain. You know, you know, for, for it's going too far to put it that way. I, I don't even know how to describe it. You know, this is, uh, you know, for the Jews, why can't he come? He buried his skinhead yesterday. What? You know, G- Jesus is that far removed from the Jewish culture. He is that much the enemy of the Sanhedrin, of all these people. Our our father, our husband, our dad, it just just nullified his presence amongst us by by involving himself with the dead body of Jesus Christ. That's crazy. This this is the sort of thing that'll fracture a family. Not not just, well, uh, next year. It's not even that. It's a matter of what in the world has happened to the patriarch of our family. How in the world? I mean, this is a choose-a-side kid sort of conversation. Are you going to wrestle your way through these things and embrace what Joseph of our family, Nicodemus of our family has embraced? Or are you going to not only reject what he has embraced, but thereby reject him? This this is cataclysmic in, in all that is going on. So here they've rolled the stone. John, parallel passage, chapter 19 Looking at verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus Christ, and let's define that term again, right? Root word of disciple, discipline. Disciplined follower of Jesus. That's that's a remarkable statement here. Joseph of Arimathea being a disciplined follower of Jesus, but secretly. No secret anymore. This this man making this decision is the end of the secrecy, and, and he and he knows that. I've been hiding my faith. I'm not hiding it anymore. 
There's a tremendous relief in this. There's also a tremendous burden that has just been added. Now he's going to have to live with the decision that he has made. He's crossed over that line. Some of us know what that's like. The Lord pulls at our hearts for a very long time. And we keep our feet in both worlds. Right? We, we put one foot solidly into the environment and the relationships that embrace Jesus. And we keep one foot solidly planted in the environment that rejects Jesus. And we just don't talk to the people that reject Jesus about the fact that we've got our foot in the other environment. And then the day comes where you can't do that anymore. There's only one direction to go. Otherwise, you end up like Judas. You have to lift your foot up out of that environment and move into the place you belong. I appreciate, I appreciate Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus for this state of existence, right? Because if everybody that followed Jesus just automatically picked up and launched across the line and landed firmly in the camp of Jesus and thumbed their nose at the world that they left behind, then we could say everyone should do it that way. <laughs> These men struggled with their decision. There was a great deal to lose, and man, did they lose. These two men were the most wealthy Jews in their community. And in less than three years, they and all of their families were homeless, and some of them were begging others were, were, it was recorded uh, that Joseph of Arimathea's daughter was clearing table was found clearing tables three years later in order to get her daily bread. For, um, Nicodemus's daughter was married uh, just a short while previous to this, and uh, Jewish historians recorded that it was the greatest celebration uh, Jerusalem had ever seen. Consider that, right? Those of you that have studied, right? They even said greater than when the ark was returned into Jerusalem. That's, wow. The, the money, the pomp, the circumstance crashing down. Uh, the secret's out. The life is over. The decision is made. They cross the lines into the camp that they belong in. There is great loss in following Christ, but... How do you replace what you've gained? How could you ever you know, substitute that? So given permission, they came and took the body of uh, Jesus. I'm, I'm in John chapter 19, reading at verse 39. Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night. So John chapter 3, right? And, and, no, and I'll, I'll make note there. Uh, I know I'm very much rambling, but Jesus said to Nicodemus, are you the ruler of the Jews and you do not know these things? Right? Not a ruler. Are you the ruler of the Jews and you do not know these things? And it is definite article, the, meaning one, singular, above all. Are you above all as the leader of the Jews and you don't know these things of the spirit and being born again to enter the kingdom? A remarkable statement. Now he's a follower. Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. 
massive amount of money involved here. This is no, uh, my, this is the sort of thing that even a rich man, people are going to say, wow, you, I, like incredible. You know, some guys that are incredibly wealthy throw their money around and we kind of, you know, as, you know, wherever we're at in our station in life go, well, really, I mean, how hard was that for them? You know, so what? Big deal. No, this is the sort of thing that's so big that uh, it, it is noteworthy to everyone. Noteworthy to history, about 100 pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. That's a very specific thing. Uh, massive, long sheet, um, usually measured according to the height of the individual, not generic. They, they would take a measurement of the body and they would then double that plus um, about a foot and a half because they lay the body down with the other end tailed out the other, other direction, pack the body with flowers and herbs and spices and all of this aloe, myrrh. And, and there's a washing process. This body is completely clean by the time it is laid to rest. They fold that completely over, and then they tie the feet together at the ankles, at the knees. They draw the hands up lay them over, tie at the elbows, so the, this stays together. It's not the mummification of the Egyptians. Folding it in around the neck, around the neck, tying the jaw into place so that it doesn't droop open. And great care and, and great honor is given to the body. I am not saying that the Shroud of Turin is the burial cloth of Jesus Christ, but it probably is. You can do your own research, watch a couple of documentaries. It's a remarkable uh, historic piece of evidence. Um, I kind of tie in the fact that Jesus, when they said, show us a sign, and he said, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah, my death, <laughs> you know, that as the son, you know, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the son of man will be in the heart of the earth. No sign except my death and resurrection will be given to you. So there are some things to examine there. So, as was the custom, he's prepared. Uh, Matthew chapter 27, verse 60 says, and they laid it, the body, in his, Joseph of Arimathea's, new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door and departed. <clears throat> so we'll end with... Uh, Matthew chapter 15, verse 47, and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, observed where he was laid. That's how they knew to come back to that location on Resurrection Sunday. New tomb uh, cut out of the rock. That's very expensive, okay? Um, even a person purchasing a plot of land was usually a cave, literally. Somebody might have caves on their property, and they would mark them, paint them, and other people could buy them. Uh, you know, I have tombs on my property, you know, stone. Uh, if you've got tillable soil in Israel, they don't bury people there. <laughs> Be because it's so rocky that they want that for farming, okay? Limestone, cut into the limestone by hand. This is hammer and chisel work. And it's tremendously laborious 
and they don't just cut a hole. If you're going to cut a tomb like this, because he could have just bought a cave with a stone. If he's paying for it to be cut limestone, and it is cut to shelves, and they build a whole process into it to where you lay a family member upon this shelf, and they decompose, and they then have a tray box at the end where they set a box and they literally scrape your remains all dried down into that box and arrange all of the bones and carefully sweep it all in and seal that box and then put it in the back of this tomb. It becomes this giant family sarcophagus where that sounds so dignified. The, the term sarcophagus means rotter, right? Shelves. It's much like your crisper drawer. Uh, anyway, um, so uh, the idea of uh, you know a, a place where and no one had ever been laid there, fulfilling what the psalmist had said, right? Buried amongst the rich, but yet never seeing the decomposition of himself or anyone else, right? He wasn't laid to rest in anyone else's decomposition. He was put in a new tomb. And resurrected. So we'll uh, look at the resurrection, uh, and um, I'm going to have for you the next time we're together the order of resurrection also, because we have uh, all of the different gospel accounts. And again, people say, oh, well, the differences, you know, prove that it's wrong. Well, actually, all of the differences in the account you can assemble very neatly into an order that the resurrection. Uh, took place in. So when we're together next, we'll look at the resurrection and we'll look at the day's order of the resurrection when we do. So that's more than the time we have. So why don't we stand and we'll pray.